0: You know, war is um, not uh, something that we celebrate, but it is a reminder of a hope that one day Messiah, Jesus Christ, will return and we will finally be at peace. Um, In the meantime, because of sin, um, we fight wars, some just, some unjust. But nevertheless, we fight wars, and it's those men and women who serve in the military and it's even those men and women who've given their lives that remind us of christ who's given his life for us and with that being said if there is anybody who has served in the military um i just want to say from inspired church to us uh, we thank you we love you uh we support you we pray for you and This weekend is dedicated to the veterans, but we are always praying for those who have served and those who are currently serving, and I think that the church can reflect and perhaps maybe even do a better job of learning how to minister to our veterans And so, with that being said, uh, if you have served or are currently serving, uh, will you please just stand so we could acknowledge you and just quickly say thank you so much? Thank you. Thank you. Will Will you join me in praying? Uh, for those who have served. Heavenly Father, uh, we recognize uh, recognize that warfare is the result of sin. We recognize that your kingdom will be consummated 100% Jesus when you come back and there will be no more need for instruments of war. But we also recognize that in this time, men and women are Uh, Fighting Uh, men and women are placing their lives on the line. And we recognize that they're doing it for this country, for those values that we hold so sacred. And so we honor them. We pray for them. I pray for veterans um, all across America. Pray for the forgotten veterans, um, those men and those women um, that are dealing with severe trauma. Lord, I pray that a movement in the church would rise up so that we could minister the grace, the peace of the gospel to them. Lord, I thank you for the men and women who are serving here and have served here at Inspire. Lord, we bless them. We bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, this morning, I am going to attempt to cover four chapters of Nehemiah. And I want to try and do it under 45 minutes or less. And so my original plan was to invite you to pray with me for a miracle Um, (laughs) and that I can do it in 45 minutes or less. And as I was preparing to go through the four chapters of Nehemiah, of course, we were going to kind of skim and hit some of the important points in the four chapters But then um, as I was scrolling through Twitter last night, um, I ran into a couple of tweets that I actually screenshot and want to read to you today. You'll see why I am reading it to you today. Uh, The first one says, we ought never hear a preacher say, I don't have time to read my sermon text today as if we ought to hurry past God's word to get to what the preacher has to say. I will haunt you if you ever say that. Next tweet, Uh, the Westminster Divines puts the public reading of Scripture on the same level of importance as the preaching of the Word of God. Public reading of Scripture is not to be omitted just as preaching isn't. So with that being said, I'm not going to skim the text this morning because I felt convicted at about 10.30 p.m. last night. We're still going to pray for a miracle that I finish in under 45 minutes, but nonetheless, we're going to read God's Word together amen all right with that being said will you open your word if you have it whether it's in app form or whether it's uh, you have your word here with you. Um, Also, we will have it for you on the screens. Um, But let's open up to Nehemiah chapter 7, and I'm going to read verse 1 through 5. There's going to be a lot of names that I'm going to read through today, and so I'm going to do my best. Uh, Hebrew, obviously, is definitely not uh, uh, something that I am uh, uh, even remotely aware of. And so uh, as I go through these names, I'll do my best to say them. Um, please uh, hold uh, making fun of me until you're at lunch. Um, With that being said, we are at Nehemiah chapter 7. I'm going to read verse 1 through 5, and it reads like this. Now when the wall had been built, can somebody just say amen to that? I mean, for the last six chapters, we have been reading about how Nehemiah has been wanting to build this wall. Uh, It says, now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. I love that. Nehemiah, this is Nehemiah's guide for leadership. I put men in leadership who are God-fearing not somebody who's, who's really good at what they do, but somebody who fears the Lord. Verse 3. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. Verse 4. The city was wide and large. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. But the people within it were few, and no homes had been rebuilt. Verse 5. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people To be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first. And I found written in it, verse 6, these were the people of the province who came out of captivity of those exiles. Whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. And what will go on is a list of 86 plus names of families who have come back for the past 90 years uh, to re-inhabit the land of Israel now chapter 7 opens with some good news and it also opens with some bad news verse 1 tells us the good news the wall has been built amen after praying and planning and asking and mobilizing and laboring in the face of opposition, the wall was finished for Nehemiah, mission accomplished. But verse 4 gives us some bad news. The people within it were few and houses had not been been rebuilt. In other words, the walls were finished but nobody wanted to move in. Now, this bothered Nehemiah. It bothered him because he knew that his burden to build the wall, his burden to rebuild the city was only a small part of God's bigger picture in redemptive history. You see, God wasn't interested in a city beautification project. But his plan was for his people to dwell in his city, worshiping him and reflecting his glory to the nations. From that place, Messiah would come and bless the world. So we see in chapters 1 through 6, Nehemiah rebuilding the walls so that the city can be secured. Then we see at the beginning of chapter 7, Nehemiah restores confidence in the city by appointing godly leaders over the city and stationing guards among the walls. So that by the end of chapter 7, the city is secured, confidence in that city is restored, and we see over 50,000 people being mobilized back into Jerusalem to actually dwell in there again. This is Nehemiah. Partnering with God to move redemptive history forward towards the outcome of the Messiah. Now this brings us to chapter 8. And chapter 8 will be what I call a transitional chapter. You see, from chapter 8 on, the focus is going to shift. The focus of the book is going to shift. And it's gonna shift off of Nehemiah and the physical rebuilding of the city, and it will shift onto a man named Ezra and the spiritual renewal of the people. And for the next three chapters eight, nine, and ten the spiritual renewal process will be marked by three prominent characteristics. And these three characteristics I wanna to, to address today. The first one is understanding. The second one is repentance. And the third one is covenant. Understanding repentance and covenant. And I love this. Nehemiah has repaired the breaches in the walls of the city. But now God wants to repair the breaches in the walls of the people's heart. What good is, is a beautiful city with a broken people. And so... This spiritual renewal process begins with understanding. If you have your Bibles, why don't you flip over to the next chapter, Nehemiah chapter 8, and I am going to read verses 1 through 13. And you have Twitter to thank. Amen. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 8, and we're going to read verse 1 through 13 together. And it says this. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month, now verse three, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. Go figure. Nehemiah read the entire Old Testament. (laughs) He read, uh, verse three, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. They had set up teams too. And beside him stood... Pray for me here as I read these words, as I read these names. Uh, aside, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Anaya, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkajah, Hashem, and Hashbadanah. I don't know if that's right, but it sounds like Hash Brown's Nah. Hashbrowns, Nah, Zachariah and Meshalem on his left hand. Now, verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. Verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Acub, Shabbatiah, Jehodiah, Messiah, Kel- Kelita, Azariah, Jozebat. I just want to put a Spanish twist to all of these. Hannah, uh, Pelaiah, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people. Understood the reading. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Verse 13, On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. Understanding is the key theme of chapter 8. Did you all catch that? The word understanding is mentioned right around five times in this chapter alone. It will be mentioned a couple of more times in the next couple of chapters. So... In this renewal process, what did the people understand? I want to hash that out with you today. Five simple understandings. What did the people understand? Well, the first thing is this. Number one, they understood the value of gathering together corporately. They understood the value of gathering together corporately. I love that this renewal was initiated by a corporate gathering. It was not about one individual experiencing a alone time with God in this secret place, but it was loud, and it was large, and it was everyone together experiencing God as his people and not as an individual. Uh, just last week, um, I saw something um, that I actually thought would fit well today. Um, I saw a well-known pastor marketing this new app that had come out. Um, And this new app had just launched. And in his marketing video, he called this new app our brand-new location. Get ready. We're launching our brand-new location. And then he invited everyone to download it right away. Now, on this app, he promised... There would be brand new content every single day. But what he was most excited about was that before every live worship experience began, people could meet new people in what he called a virtual lobby. And here's probably what concerned me the most. He said this app will be a place where people could actually build real Tactile relationships all over the world. Now, I don't know everything about this app, but my heart was grieved for a moment because I, feel, I felt like the value of gathering together corporately was being compromised in the name of technology. In our individualistic culture, even the church is being tempted to participate in a Christianity that downplays the need for us to regularly attend service and worship God together. We are a sometime, part-time Christian people in America. We gather sometimes on Sunday. Now, I struggle with this because I deal with attention Because I recognize that compromise and legalism both steal the beauty of the gospel. I don't want to be legalistic and say that you have to attend church every Sunday. But here's what I do want to say. We can't make a habit out of regularly skipping the gathering of believers and still expect to receive the blessing of renewal. We can't. So, number one, they understood the value of gathering together corporately. Number two, they understood that this corporate gathering was to be centered around God's word. Now, unfortunately, again, here we go. Today, many churches, are you ready for this? They're centered around one man's charisma. They're centered around one man's ability to tell clever stories. In fact, in many places in America, I'm sad to say, but we don't go to church for the word, but we go to church for the man. Now I hope, and it's my prayer that Inspire would raise up multiple speakers of the word. I recognize in the beginning of this replan- or in the beginning of this planting project, you're going to hear a lot of me. If I continue to give you more of me, I'm going to train you to come and listen to one man. My hope is that from within Inspire, there would be men of integrity, God-fearing men, that God would raise up to come and speak at this pulpit, because it's not about one man. So I hope that we would raise up multiple speakers of the word and that you'd never focus more on me and my gifting than on God and his holy scripture, which is kind of why the reason I felt like I needed to read the word this morning. Now I want you to also notice that the gathering was not centered around great practical advice. Some of you, you have to discern this. Why are speakers your favorite speakers? Is it because they give you great practical advice on how to live life better? Or are they actually exegeting the word? Some of us, we love speakers because they're giving us practical advice. And we don't like pastors that maybe aren't speaking practically to us. Now, I understand we need to be relevant. We need to package it in a way so that you could understand it could speak to your needs. But the word of God is the word of God. I want you to notice the gathering was not centered around great practical advice, (laughs) nor was Ezra, and this blessed me and actually convicted me simultaneously, nor was Ezra scrambling to find a topical message that would speak directly into their circumstances. What am I going to speak about today? But instead, you ready for this? Ezra spent six hours simply reading an orderly account of the Pentateuch the first five books of the Bible. Now, when I first read this, I thought to myself, I wonder how many people would just stop showing up if we decided to read only Scripture all day. And if I'm being honest, I'd stop showing up. Can you imagine that? But doesn't that show our Doesn't that show how off-centered we can be? Yet this is what renewal and revival within God's people look like. It wasn't about the leaders. This is so important. It wasn't about the leaders bringing the word to them. But did you catch this? It was about them requesting for the leaders to bring the word. Did you catch that? Did you catch that they all gathered together and they told Ezra, give us the word? It wasn't a bunch of leaders standing on a pulpit saying, you need the word, you need the word, get in the word, you need in the word. It was the people gathering said, Ezra, bring us the word. We want the word. I want you to listen to this. They came to the corporate gathering already hungry. You guys hear that? Yeah. Now, if you're, you're new to Christianity or maybe this is your first time here, or you're just here observing. You can sit back and enjoy this. But if you're a follower of Christ, you're a disciple of Christ, and you call yourself a Christian, maybe you should start taking a look at your arrival to the church and ask yourself, am I coming hungry or am I waiting for the third song to get hungry? Or do I need a cheerleader to get me hungry for the word? They came to the corporate gathering already hungry. Verse 1 tells us they were all together as one man. In other words, they all showed up ready to eat. (laughs) Verse 3 tells us the ears of all the people were attentive. Are you ready for this? They wanted to be there. And while the book was being read... They weren't casually scrolling through Facebook, right? They weren't on their Instagram while the book was being read. I know I got some of you already. Some of you are like this. Got him. It's a joke, everybody. To so be like, I'm never coming back to this church again. It's a joke. Nobody here was doing that. Some of you were on your Bible app. (laughs) How about this? They weren't counting the minutes down until lunch or the game. But the scripture tells us their ears received every word because greater than lunch, greater than the game, greater than Instagram and Facebook was the word of the Lord being spoken I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm simply saying the priorities of our hearts in America are shifted really in a way that needs to be readjusted. So let the Lord casually convict you, all right? It's okay. Like we should be part of a Christianity of correction, right? A lot of times we, just, we don't like, Philip, just speak a word of no correction, but we need to be exhorted and rebuked sometimes. Some of you like it too much. Some of you like, just correct us all day long. No, that's not right. <laughs> Right. There's two types of people. There's the people like, I want to come to church and get beat up. Right. Beat me up. That was good word, Pat. I know there's some people that will tell me it's a good word when I get harsh. Pastor Phil, you should preach more like that. I'm like, well, I just beat up everybody. And some people come up to me and that was so encouraging. Right. Let's just let's just marry those two bad boys together and just live in the full counsel of God's word. Amen. Scripture says that they were attentive. Their ears received every word because they recognized that the life-giving power of the creator of the universe was spoken through his word. Number three, they understood their need for capable teachers equipped to help them understand the book. Let me listen to verse 7 and 8 again. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Aikub, Shabbatai. Hodiah, Maasaiah, Kelida, Azariah, Josebad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. Who said connect groups weren't scriptural? Who said small groups weren't biblical? What you have here is 50,000 people coming to hear the word of the Lord. And after the word is being read, you have a bunch of leaders being sent out, forming smaller groups and going over to scriptures. And here's what we see. We're seeing in these verses capable men going out to the crowds. They're making sense of the text. Now, there's three reasons why this was necessary. Number one, the language, right? Many of the return exiles no longer spoke Hebrew, so they needed to depend on men who could accurately translate the original language of the text. And finally, the last two, context and commentary. Here's really crazy. These people are more like you and I than we think. You know, a lot of us, were reading this, thinking, like, man, that happened so long ago. But they're more like you and I than what we think. You want to know why? As Ezra was reading the book of the Pentateuch, do you realize that they were a thousand years removed from when that all happened? The Bible, when Ezra was reading it, was just as ancient to them as it was to us. Wow, that's good. And so what did they need? They needed capable, equipped, able men who were able to come alongside of them, help them understand what the Lord was saying. They needed to rely on gifted men, trusted men, God-fearing men, who they can trust to exposit the text in a way that honored God's original intention. That is why as I mature in my leadership, and I'm still learning, I am increasingly learning to become more stingy with this pulpit. I intend and I want to, and my heart is to raise up people who can preach, but not just because they're skilled orators, but because they're willing to devote themselves to the time and effort it takes to communicate the words of God correctly. I cringe when someone stands up here and says something. I'm like, and I recognize that's my responsibility. Number one. They recognized their need to gather the value of gathering corporately. Number two, they recognized that the gathering of the the corporate believers needed to be centered around the word. Number three, they realized they needed capable, able men equipped to help them understand the scriptures. Number four, they understood how critical it was. Are you ready for this? For the heads of homes to be instructed at deeper levels. Did you see that? This is a two-day event. The first day is everyone, men and women, who could understand. Scriptures are being read. Small groups are progressing forward. And you know what happened on day two? Only the heads of the homes came back. I always look for an opportunity to challenge the men in the room, the fathers in the room. In chapter 8, we see a two-day event. On the first day, everyone went. On the second day, only the heads Of the households went. Single moms, I want to challenge you. I wonder if we as leaders of our homes have the same sense of urgency when it comes to growing deeper in the word. I wonder if some of you are doing more than just attending a Sunday morning service to equip yourself and your family. I wonder if the heads of the homes in this room can adequately articulate the gospel to their children. I wonder if the heads of the homes in this room can wrestle with the questions of doubt that may arise in their house. When my son or my daughter comes home from college with a question that has shaken their faith, I wonder if you could handle it with confidence in the scriptures, or will you just say, go ask your pastor? I wonder why there's a generation of young people leaving the church and leaving the Lord, because their parents have blindly followed them in, but haven't dug into the scriptures themselves. My dream is to have a church full of heads of households that love the word more than they love sleeping in. They love the word more than they love watching the game. And more than they love hanging out with their boys or their girls. We need renewal. Some of us don't want it. We're, in, we're offended by it, but we need it. Finally, number five they understood that the word of God always demands a response. It always demands a response. And in this case, the spiritual understanding of chapter eight turns into the genuine repentance of chapter nine. Let's go to chapter nine. Open up to chapter nine. And we're gonna read verses one to wherever I stop. (laughs) And God bless the visual team. They have no idea where I'm going to go. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Verse four, on the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadamiel, Zebaniah, Unai, Sherubiah, Bani, and Chenina. I don't even know if that was a word. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Let's go to verse 6. Well, actually, let's stop right there. What will follow on this third day? Well, actually, they spent two days in a corporate assembly. Day one, they read the word. They mourned, but Ezra told them, no, cheer up. Now's the time to celebrate. Day two, the heads of the homes came in. And they studied deeply in the word. Scripture tells us while they were studying on day two, they came apart. They came to a portion of scripture uh, where the Israelites were to celebrate what they called the feast of the booths. And so they stopped what they're doing. They went out. They gathered all of these branches. They created these booths. And they lived in it. And it was to commemorate the beauty of God's provision while they were in the wilderness during the time that they were brought out of Egypt and they wandered towards the promised land. They lived in Booths. And so they commemorate that to celebrate the time over 1,000 years ago where they were delivered out of slavery and they lived in Booths. Now, Scripture tells us maybe about 24, 25 days later, after the initial corporate gathering, they came back. And Ezra says, "Now's the time to mourn. Now is the time to mourn. And they will mourn, and they will pray, and they will fast, and they will repent, and they will confess. And what will follow for the next 21 verses is a prayer. Now, let me tell you about this prayer. This prayer is interesting. This prayer is basically the longest retelling of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. The people of God will literally pray the Old Testament recalling in their prayer several major occurrences from Genesis to the prophets, highlighting God's faithfulness and their sin every step of the way as a nation. Now, everything will culminate with this realization. If you're at chapter 9, let's read verses 36 through 37. Everything will culminate with this realization. They'll spend over 26 verses, maybe less, They'll spend over 15 to 20 verses, I believe it was, recounting, repraying the Old Testament, and then it'll all culminate with this realization. Verse 36, behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Let me explain this. You understand that Nehemiah was sent by the Persian king Artaxerxes to rebuild the wall. You remember that? You understand that he rebuilt the wall. And in rebuilding the wall, over 50,000 people come to re-inhabit the land. You understand that? That is cause for celebration. But what is also cause for distress is that even though they're living in their city with a rebuilt wall, they're still slaves under King Artaxerxes. Do you see that? They're still slaves. And so as sad as this omission is, as sad as this realization is, this is what genuine repentance looks like. Here in this particular portion of scripture, they model for you and I what genuine repentance looks like. I want you to write this down. Genuine repentance. I want you to write this down. It's really simple. Number one, genuine repentance looks like you and I taking ownership. You and I taking ownership. Genuine repentance looks like you and I taking ownership. If you're taking notes, that would be so important. If you're not and you have a photographic memory, please remember this. Genuine repentance looks like you and I taking ownership. Notice, they take responsibility for their self-inflicted distress. Although God has placed them there, they recognize that God's judgment is righteous, and they realize that the current mess that they're in was because of their own sin. They said, we're enslaved. We give the choice of our crops, the choice of our yields, still go to a man in a faraway country. We are still enslaved to the Persians, even though we live in our city. And they say, God, we recognize that your hand is, you put us into slavery, But you did it as a righteous judgment because this is what our sin deserves. You see, a lot of Christians, you just stop at blaming God. You put me here. This is your fault. You're sovereign. But we never take responsibility for the fact that our sin has consequence. That built into our sin, there's some consequences. And so what I love about this repentance is it takes ownership. Although God is placed them there, they recognize God's judgment as righteous and realize the current mess they're in was because of their own sin. Listen to this. Genuine repentance starts with the understanding that God's judgments are right and my sin deserves wrath. That's all. That's all. And I'm, I'm not saying that God makes bad things happen to you to judge you for your sin. What I'm saying in the Old Testament... The people of God would stray away from God, and as a result, God said, if you're not going to keep my covenant, then you're going to be enslaved to surrounding nations. This will be the punishment of you breaking the covenant, and you will see the people of God go into slavery and then come out of it as they restore relationship with God. And us, as New Testament saints, under the new covenant, the blood of Jesus, what we realize is this, is the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And we recognize that our sin deserves the wrath of God, plain and simple. Our sin deserves God's wrath. Number two, genuine repentance produces godly sorrow. Remember, the first one is ownership. God, I recognize that this is my sin. I recognize that my sin deserves wrath. The second part about genuine repentance is that it produces godly sorrow. We're told that they fasted, they wore sackcloth, they literally poured dirt on their heads, which were all signs of mourning. You see, when we see the effects of sin on us, on the people around us, and we especially begin to understand how our sin grieves God. If we love him, we can't help but lament. We can't help but mourn. We can't help but turn into a place of sadness, understanding that not only have we hurt others, not only have we hurt myself, but we've hurt God. Now, I want to caution you at this point. Too often we do mourn, but only because we're caught. Wow. Only because we're caught. Wow. We're not mourning while we're... We're mourning because we're caught, because we've been exposed. But we must be sure that we are mourning our sin because our sin... It's sinful not because it's painful. You hear me? I I thank God that sin is painful though. Because if it wasn't painful, maybe I wouldn't come to my senses. I just enjoy it too much. Isn't sin painful? Doesn't overpromise and underdeliver. Aren't some of us feeling the effects of the good time that we were having that ultimately turned into something that we never expected to take place? Genuine repentance looks like you and I taking ownership. Genuine repentance produces godly sorrow. Number three, genuine repentance leads to confession. We're told they spent (laughs) three hours reading the book and then another three hours worshiping and confessing their sins. Worship team, could you imagine leading worship and confessing sins for three hours? They didn't just admit their mistakes. They verbalized it, brought it into the light. You know, one of my favorite sayings when it comes to confession is this. Ready? Disclosure is better than exposure. Disclosure is better than exposure. I'm not saying you get up here with a mic and tell everybody, hey, guys, this is what I did. What I'm saying is is that if we want to become a healthy people of God, we should understand that we are all sinful people. You know, one of the biggest mistakes we make, and we talked about this. I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but we talk about this in our, in our connect groups. Is the opportunities to come together and to cry together, to mourn together, to laugh together, to celebrate together, even confess our sin to one another. And you know what? That element is missing because no one wants to confess their sin together. But I think what happens is, is when, we, when we take confession out of the church, we create a false sense of reality. And everyone's sitting next to each other with a dark sin, but nobody wants to admit it because everyone's walking around as if they're okay. And you know what we do? When we remove our weakness, we remove our need for Christ. And what we do is we create a bunch of people who are earning their salvation because you're just living by the law when you're really not. Now, I get it. Sometimes God will expose. Anybody ever been on that side? I have, right? Sometimes you just, you just need to be exposed. You're just a knucklehead. And nothing's stopping you. And then the light will shine and just, oh, I've been caught. I have been caught. And you'll think it's judgment. God said, no, that's my grace, honey, right? That's my grace that you got caught. You thought nobody, watched, nobody saw you. Brother so-and-so, right? Saw you randomly. What are you doing here? I see, I see you both. You get the point. Sometimes the grace of God is God allowing exposure to take place in our lives. Finally, number four, well, not finally, but number four, repentance isn't truly biblical repentance unless there is some kind of an evidence of a turn. Uh, This is the hardest one to preach. Uh, Until there is literal change of behavior. Look, if we're taking true responsibility... If we're truly sorry in our confession, then we should be actively praying for and taking action to turn away from the very thing that's grieving the heart of God. I'll be honest with you, praying for for forgiveness is not good enough, right? We we treat the three-minute prayer of forgiveness like an eraser that erases everything we did during that day, don't we? We go, we live like hell. The whole day, and then come home at night and speck a three minute prayer, asking the Lord forgive you to be taken as some sincere, contrite, sorrowful form of repentance that takes the cross of Christ serious, wow. Wow. and then we' go back and live the same lifestyle over and over again before you know it, it's been five, six, seven years, nothing has changed in your life. nothing has shifted in your life. I want you to listen to um, chapter 9, verse 38. Well, before we go there, I just want to say this. Do not take comfort in a false sense of security. Genuine repentance is taking place when sinful patterns are being shifted under the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Um, Chapter 9, verse 38, says this. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Now let's go to chapter 10, and I want to read verse 26 through 29. It reads like this. Actually, we're going to go to 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. Not only did they have small groups, they signed covenants, too, evidently. I want to conclude by quickly breaking the concept of covenant down to you. Remember, there was a renewal taking place in which three primary characteristics were emerging. Number one, there was understanding. Number two, there was repentance. And finally, number three, there was a covenant with God. So what is a covenant? Well, here's what I want you to see. The first 27 verses of chapter 10 will go on to list more than 86 names of leaders, Levites, priests, and princes who will personally sign a covenant. Then in verses 28 through 39, which I just read to you, chapter 10, it will go on to list several corporate behavioral changes that they will commit to. As a sign of their genuine repentance. Now, I'm not going to read through all of these, and I'm going to feel okay about it, but I'm going to break it down to you really quickly. They repented genuinely, and as a sign of that repentance, they signed a covenant, and in that covenant, they covenanted with God. We will change our behavior, and here are three major areas that we will make a shift in and change in. The first one was they will commit to a separation. Let me explain the separation. They'll no longer give their sons and daughters away in marriage to other nations. They will no longer commit their children to marry somebody outside of the people of God. Because what happens was, is every time the people of Israel begin to intermingle with foreign nations, idolatry would come in. That's number one. Number two, they will commit to Sabbath. They'll no longer trade with foreign nations on the Sabbath day. And they'll even make sure that the land will rest every seven years. Finally, number three, they'll commit to give. They'll commit to tithe. They'll give their cattle, their grain, and their their first fruits of their grounds and their trees. They'll give that away to the house of God. And I love how chapter 10 finishes. Look at verse 39 of chapter 10. It says this. We will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. I want to conclude this morning. And I I really, if you didn't get the entire message, this is the most important thing I want you to get. Israel will learn quickly. Are you ready? Ready? Are you ready? Let's try that again. Are you ready? Yeah. Amen. Israel will learn quickly that no matter how hard they try, they're never able to keep their end of the covenant. No matter how hard they try, they will never be able to keep their end of their covenants. What is true of their history will also be true of their future. God is faithful. Yet no matter how hard they try, Israel will never be faithful. And here's what that tells us. Something radically needs to change or they're doomed they will always live a life of covenant breaking. No matter how excited they are in the moment. They had a worship service, six hours. They had another day, 12 hours. They had a month of feasting. They came back, another beautiful service of worship. They all gathered together. They made a list. They figured out all the areas that they messed up. They signed a covenant and said, never again. But they're doomed. Because never, they're never able to fill the covenant. So what do they do? Well, let me tell you this. Israel not only needs a faithful covenant giver, but they also need from within them a faithful covenant keeper. You hear me? Israel not only needs a faithful righteous covenant giver but they'll also need from within their ranks a faithful righteous covenant keeper and for a thousand years they have never found a faithful righteous covenant keeper So, what do they do? They're doomed. They're lost. They'll never be who God has called them to be. They'll never shine like they're called to shine. They'll never carry the glory like they've been able to carry the glory. What will they do? And you know what Ezra does? Ezra will say, We gotta gotta live by the law. We gotta live by the law. And do you know from Ezra, the Pharisees will be formed? You know where the Pharisees come from? The New Testament Pharisees come from the time of Ezra because they said to themselves, never again will we go back into exile. So we will build law on law on law on law on law and we will do as much as we can to make sure that we never go back there again. Even then they still break. Israel not only needs a faithful covenant giver, but they'll also need from within them a faithful covenant Keeper, And so far from the looks of the first thousand years, that's never going to happen. But this is the glory of God's big picture. This is what Nehemiah was a part of. This is what the New Testament church is a part of. This is the glory of God's bigger picture. Ready? In this moment, Ezra standing in front of all these people who are swearing they'll never do it again. They'll ultimately do it again. In this moment, I want you to know this. Jesus is coming. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And Jesus will become everything they're not. And Jesus will be... Obedience And Jesus will be faithful. He will be obedient and faithful covenant keeper. He will be a servant who absolutely fulfills the conditions of the covenant through his life and through his suffering. And for those of us who would just repent and believe in the name of Jesus, our unfaithfulness will be hidden in his faithfulness. Our unrighteousness will be hidden in his righteousness. Our imperfection will be hidden in his perfection. And the faithful covenant keeper, will no longer see the unfaithful covenant breakers but will see jesus and it's from that understanding that the new testament church responds you and i we can't initiate we can only respond when we initiate we break the covenant but when we respond to the great faithful covenant keeper the holy spirit empowers us to begin to walk and not of our own power but in the power of the spirit of god And it's from that understanding that we now respond with total worship and unwavering devotion to Christ Jesus. Because without him, we would be doomed. Without him, my sins would earn what it deserves, the wrath of God. But on that cross, on that beautiful yet ugly cross, on that place of execution, the wrath of God was placed on Jesus. And the New Testament church and inspired church is built on that reality. You wanna know why we gather every Sunday? You wanna know why we worship every Sunday? You wanna know why we revolve around the word every Sunday? Because of Christ. You wanna know why God empowers some of us to be covenant keepers even though we break it sometimes? Because of Christ. That's who we are. Let's pray. before we finish I'd just like to finish this morning with some worship can we join in with our Old Testament brothers and sisters that the word was spoken and as the word was spoken they couldn't help but respond and here's what's beautiful is our response is a response of joy our response is a response of joy because there's a faithful covenant keeper. They were looking forward to what you and I already have. I'm gonna, we're going to pray and dismiss in a moment, but I'm wondering, can we just respond to the Savior, Jesus Christ, and everything He is and what He represents in our unfaithful lives? And can we just give Him and bring Him glory? Thank you, Jesus. This morning we put our faith in the covenant keeper not we don't put any faith in ourselves we don't put faith in our behavior in our righteousness but we put faith in the righteousness of jesus so heavenly father if we're moved to repentance this morning may we be moved to it lord out of the beauty of jesus God, will you help us to understand renewal? Will you help us understand revival? Will you help us to understand what it means to love the house of God? Will you help us to understand what it means to come together as God's people? We thank you that your word speaks to us in every season. Lord, we're the heads of these, we're the heads of households that Inspire, where they would submit to study and learn your word at a deeper level. Will you raise up faithful men and faithful women, God? Be equipped and capable to articulate your word to a world that has lost the meaning of your word will you continue to raise up faithful churches in the bay area when we pray for every church in the bay area faithful churches committed to preaching your word and committed to the glory of jesus christ Lord, we pray for anybody in here today facing mountains and valleys and facing difficulties. God, I pray that the joy of the Lord would be our strength. The joy of the Lord would be our strength. The joy of the Lord would be our strength. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in this community. I pray a blessing on everyone in this room. I pray a blessing upon what you're doing here in Union City. So, Father, I ask that you would just be with us as we leave this place, that we step into the mission field. May we shine the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the faithful covenant keeper. We bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We love you. Join us next Sunday. If you don't have a home church, have a wonderful Sunday.